Well, it is the first day of the week and a wonderful day for God's people to come together to glorify Him. Thank you for being here to do that this morning. We do have visitors and we're so happy that you can come to honor the God of heaven and worship Him with us this morning. And has has been mentioned, as has been mentioned in uh, the prayer that was prayed, and even think about the song and the words that we just sang, Father, be glorified in your church today. God is being glorified all over the world, including uh, in places where this church has fellowship with men and brethren preaching the gospel. To a lot of people in the world, uh, today and tomorrow is a pretty special holiday, and families will be together, and people really all over the world uh, celebrate uh, Christmas as a holiday of one sort or another. Before we get into the lesson this morning, I'd like to share with you something that has happened in Zimbabwe the last three or four days. Not with uh, men we support, but men that I've worked with uh, on several occasions. Uh, Takawira Mukano and his son Shingai and uh, another brother by the name of Gilbert realized uh, that everybody was going to be home these few days for the holiday, even in Zimbabwe. And uh, everybody would just be sitting around in the villages, and they decided this would be a great time to go into a village and just evangelize it. So the three of them uh, are away from their families for a few days, evangelizing a village over the last several days, preaching the gospel. And as a, as a result, a consequence of their dedication and their desire to glorify God, 36 people were baptized over the last few days as a result of their work. God is glorified when we do his will, when we understand who Jesus is and honor him every day in our lives by doing what we can do to share the gospel with others. As we begin then the lesson this morning, I'd like us to think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and God's intention in sending Christ into this world in the flesh. The the word incarnation literally means embodied in the flesh or taking on flesh. And it refers generally to the idea of some sort of spirit of some kind taking on earthly form or appearance and becoming human. If the word is capitalized, if you look this up in the dictionary, if the word is capitalized, it refers to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the union of divinity and humanity that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to see in a minute that Jesus Christ was always God. He was the Word who existed with God from before the creation of the world. But when He came to this earth and took on flesh, He became man. It wasn't God turning into man. It was one who was God adding humanity to his deity. So he is truly the God-man. It wasn't minus God plus man. It was God plus man. That's who we have in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul will write, great is the mystery of godliness that Jesus Christ was born into the world in this way. What does the modern man-made holiday known as Christmas have to do with God's divine purpose in the incarnation of His Son? Well, virtually nothing, just to be honest with you. 
you don't find Christmas or any celebration, annual celebration of the birth of Christ in the Bible. And the Bible, after all, is God's Word, and it reveals to us what is in God's mind. As Paul describes the process of inspiration in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he asks the question, What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. These things we speak, he says, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Spirit teaches, combining spiritual things with spiritual words. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about inspiration. He's talking about God sharing His mind with humanity. And that mind of God is found in the Word of God, the words that were spoken and written by the apostles and prophets. That's what Paul is saying there. Where am I going to with this? I'm talking about the significance of Christmas. Here's what I know. Christmas was not in the mind of God when He sent His Son in the flesh. How do I know that? His Word says nothing about it. And His Word reveals His mind. That's what we just read. And so, the word Christmas is not found in the Bible. The date of Jesus' birth is not in the Bible. Nor is there any indication that His birth was celebrated annually by anyone in the Bible. What we have in Christmas is a man-made holiday uh, which was initially made by men to honor something about the birth of Christ. We recognize that that is a fact of human history. But it's a man-made holiday. And in modern times, it carries with it the positive values of giving and sharing and being with family and bonding with friends. But on the other hand, Christmas may actually obscure the significance of the Incarnation behind a veil of human tradition and tinsel and materialism. It's hard to see what God intended in the Incarnation of His Son if you look at what we celebrate and how we celebrate on December 25th. In short, while Christmas may make a fine man-made holiday, and it's up to a person individually, I believe, whether they want to uh, you know, celebrate Christmas in some way or another. I believe that falls into Romans 14. I've preached about that before. Uh, and I'm not going to preach about it today. That's not what this lesson's about. But in any case, I believe it falls far short of helping us understand God's intention for the incarnation of Christ. And that leads me really to the main point of the lesson, which is this. Believing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that God took on flesh, is a critical point to the salvation of every human being who's going to be saved. If you do not believe that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. In 1 John chapter 4, John says in verses 2 and 3 some things that help us understand the high degree of importance that God places on belief in the incarnation. John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. 
And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? You confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's of God. If you don't, that's not of God. That is not acceptable to God. So what is the incarnation all about from God's standpoint, from His view, from what He's expressed to us out of His mind in His Word? The divine intention of the incarnation begins with providing a worthy king for the kingdom of God. How could anybody on earth be the king of what is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? It was God's stated stated purpose through the prophets of old to bring a king who would be the worthy king of his kingdom. And so Isaiah prophesied about it in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And he said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government, the rule, the reign, he's going to be in charge of the government. He'll be the king. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and upon the throne of his father David, and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it, will accomplish it. What did we learn? God had in his mind, and his intention was to bring forth the son who would be the king, who would sit on the throne of David over his people, and who would reign forever. Many passages in the Old Testament uh, say the same sort of thing, and we've studied that not too long ago. So here's God's intention in the incarnation. Jesus then came to be a king and became a king. In John chapter 18, he's standing before Pilate, and the charge that's been leveled against him by the Jews is that he's claiming to be a king in rivalry with Caesar. Pilate's concerned about that from a political standpoint, but he has no knowledge of the spiritual implications of who Jesus really is. In John 18 and verse 36, Jesus explains to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Just point blank. Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly, I am a king for this cause I was born and have come into the world that I should bear witness of the truth, particularly this truth, the truth of his kingship. For this cause I was born. Here's why Jesus came. Unto you is born today in the city of David a king. Is Christ the Lord. That was what that was the announcement. That was the announcement of the angel. His coming enables us as human beings to know God. If you look at John chapter uh, Isaiah chapter 9, rather, and, and verses 6 and 7, again going back to what the Old Testament prophets said about the coming king. Uh, this, is John, this is Isaiah 7 and verse 14. I'll get there in a minute. 
Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin conceived and bore a son. Indeed, Galatians 4 and verse 4 says to us that God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That is a strange way to say that. He sent forth his son, his son, born of a woman. That's so descriptive of how Christ came into the world, isn't it? The son of God, and yet through a woman. Uh, The word there, born of, is a little bit different than the word that's normally used in the original, and it has to do with the idea of something that's created out of or uh, comes out of more than just the concept of a birth. So he was created out of. You know, man, woman initially came out of man. He was she, uh, Woman was created from man's side, right? But here you have the reverse being said. He came out of Mary, but the son of God. That was prophesied in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, and verified in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and verified again in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and following, when the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus. For he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's all Again, what Isaiah had said would happen. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, that's what Isaiah had said would happen. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? I've I've never had relations with a man. How can this possibly be? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. God became man through a virgin. And as we noted already, as was said in Isaiah, his name would be Emmanuel. It is, it is Matthew that explains in the New Testament the meaning of that name for us. Matthew 1, starting in verse 20. Joseph was thinking about putting Mary away once she had become pregnant. But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you your wife, Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Just exactly as the angel had said to Mary, that's what had happened. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken through the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a, transla- that's a quotation from Isaiah. But then Matthew adds this, which is translated, God with us. Can I talk to you for a minute or two about the word with? in the phrase, God with us. 
With is a really incredibly powerful word if you think about it. When you add the word with, it normally changes things. It indicates that some sort of bond is created, that some sort of presence is there. So I say, well, he is with me, or she is with child, or play with us. See how the word with there is so critical to those statements? And indicates a, a relationship and a presence. The word with is a word that connects people together. It is, as a part of speech, a preposition. And it's a bridging that express, expresses a relationship between two clauses. But if those described in the clauses are people, then you have a relationship. So for example, we all know that the best way to show love is not just to say it, but to show it. And so in relationships that we have with people that are loving relationships, we often say that I'm with so-and-so. I'm with so-and-so. Or she is with me. When you like someone, you want to be with them. And so, you hold hands. You eat together. And then, she tells you, you're going to be with me for the rest of your life. <laughs> and you are. You're with. When you take vows into marriage, to have and to hold for richer or, or poor in sickness and in health, you're vowing, you're vowing to be with. Let's go back to the name of Jesus. His name is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Jesus is the personal demonstration of the truth that God loves us. And he wants to be with us in this life and in the life to come. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the incarnation is all about. God in a relationship with me and you. It was all enabled because Christ took on flesh. The Word was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word with God, they had that relationship in the beginning. And then in verse 14 of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh, entered into this world as a human being. That's the incarnation that's being described. The Word that was eternal, who is known to us as Jesus and named Jesus when He came to this world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the book. Notice that the only begotten Son. The only one who was with God eternally and came into this world to be flesh. The only begotten Son. He has declared Him. 
he has declared him. The New American Standard Bible there says he has explained him. The ESV and the New English Translation say he's made God known. He's made God known. But I think the translation that may be actually closest to the meaning and pretty literal is from the contemporary English version, which says, he has shown us what, it got, what God is like. He has shown us what God is like. How can we know what God is like? Have you, have you ever just, well, what's God like? Men, for thousands of years, wondered what God was like. And people all over the globe to whom he did not reveal himself in any way other than the natural world had to guess at what God was like. And so they thought about the moon and the stars that they could see in the heavens. They crafted idols that were just the product of their imaginations about what God is like. Then, the incarnation. And God became flesh and dwelt among us. And people saw him and touched him and heard him. And that's what God is like. He's like Jesus. He is. Jesus is the explanation of God in human terms. So I never have to wonder ever again what God is like. For he is shown to me in Jesus Christ. And I would not know God had it not been for the incarnation. Just think about all of those thousands of years, human beings all over the globe, desiring to know what you and I can know by looking at Jesus in his word. That's what God is like. In John chapter 14 and verse 8, on the night that he was betrayed, Philip said to him at one point, Father, show us, or Lord, rather, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Lord, just, just show us, show us the Father, and, and that'll be all we need. <laughs> just show us what, 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 who God is. And, and Jesus says, "Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is showing us the Father. He did show us the Father. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals to mankind the very image of God. We can't create an idol that represents God in any accurate way. But Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image there is from the Greek word icon, which is a word sometimes used for idols. But Jesus is the icon of God. 
the exact representation of who God is. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. God communicates to us through Jesus. He tells us who He is. That's why Jesus is the Word. He is the communication of God Himself to humankind. He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ is the express image of the person of God. I am so thankful, and I hope we all are this morning, for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So that we might know God, and because, because knowing God and knowing Jesus is eternal life. Jesus prayed it in that prayer in John chapter 17. This is eternal life, in verse 3 he says. This is eternal life, as he's talking to God the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God. And to know Him through Jesus is eternal life. The divine intention of the incarnation is to provide for us a mediator and a qualified high priest. Long ago in the book of Job, Job, as great a man as he was, certainly felt the difference between himself as a human being and the divine creator of the universe. He realizes in Job 9 and verse 32, talking about God, that He is not a man as I am, that I may answer Him, that we should go to court together, nor is there any any mediator between us who may lay His hand on us both. So so Job realized, here I am, just a human being, here God is fully God, and and there's nobody really who can put His hand on both of us, who can relate to both of us. Job felt that need, that problem acutely. I can't go to court with God. I can't enter into a discussion of what, I, what I'd like to say, what my needs are and what my failings are and what I'd like God. I can't, I can't get there because nobody understands both me and Him. And again, all through human history up to the time that, of the incarnation, there was nobody, nobody, who could fully understand both man and God by their experience. Who could relate fully to both by their experience. But there is now. The Apostle Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Look at it. The man, Christ Jesus. He doesn't say the God or the Son of God even. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He's God in the flesh. But what does He say? The mediator is not just God. He's man. The God-man. He's the mediator between us. And related to that, although not quite exactly the same, that also qualifies Him to be our high priest. In the Old Testament, High priest went into the presence of God for the people, but again, he was just just a man with all of his faults and all of his sins and all of his shortcomings trying to enter into the presence of God. He had to first offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could even start to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. 
And, and that problem is explored in depth by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 4 and verse 15. The writer says, We do not, though, have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Both sides of that are so important for us to look at when we think of our high priest. He was in all points tempted as we are. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can never say to God, God, you don't understand me. Jesus says, yes, I understand you. I live a human life. I understand you. I experienced the same temptations you do. I felt the same human frailties that you feel. He was tempted in all points as we are. But the other part of that is what? Yet without sin. He maintained the purity of divinity while living in humanity. What a wonderful thing. Jesus came to save us. He came to seek and save that which is lost. In Matthew's account in Matthew 1 and verse 21, His name shall be called Jesus, you remember the angel saying, for He will save His people from their sins. In Luke chapter 2, speaking to the shepherds, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior is born. Christ came to be a Savior. He was given a body, a physical body, a fleshly body, to sacrifice. Because all of the sacrifices... Of all time, the, just think of the millions of animals that had been slain over centuries to try to expiate the sin of mankind. The Hebrew writer says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It couldn't happen. All of the blood that was shed by animals whose blood could never solve the problem. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He, he came as flesh and blood. What was the purpose? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to die. So that we don't have to. He came to give himself. And to conquer death. He came to provide a sacrifice. Again in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. He came into the world. When he came into the world the writer says. He said. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. God didn't want all of those animals from the Old Testament. That wasn't going to solve the problem. He says those sacrifices you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me. Why was, God, why, why, why was Jesus given a body? He was given a body to sacrifice. So we could have a sacrifice that was capable of removing our sin. And so he came and sacrificed that body. After all of the millions of lambs that have been sacrificed, 
that had been sacrificed in the Old Testament ages. Jesus Christ is walking in the open one day and John the Baptist turns to him and points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus came. To be the Lamb of God. And he died. He died so that we don't have to experience eternal death. Through his death, he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, 15 then says. And as we said in last week's lesson about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Jesus was made possible because of his incarnation. He never could have died. He never would have been risen from the dead had it not been for the incarnation. So for him to conquer death, he had to die. For him to die, he had to become human. All of that made possible by the incarnation. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. There are not very many people in human history who have walked on the moon. One of them is a man by the name of James Irwin. And the story goes, verified by those who were with him and later on by himself, uh, the experience that he had while on the moon. He uh, stood there and paused for a long time at a moment that uh, he shouldn't have been pausing perhaps. And he thought about, as he looked at the earth from the moon, all the strife among the nations and the poverty and the hunger and the rampant evil, which we would call the problem of sin. And he thought to himself, what's more important than man walking on the moon is that God should walk on the earth. Jesus is God come to earth. And he rules in both heaven and earth. As we live life in the flesh, we may feel that God is distant. That he doesn't understand what's going on with us. We may even say that. We may even think it. God, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea how bad I'm hurting. You don't understand what what all of these pains that I have are all about. You don't understand how weak my flesh is. But God speaks from heaven through Jesus Christ and says to us, yes, I do. I know exactly. Because of the incarnation, God understands you. And because of the deity of Jesus, He can save you. He cares. He helps. He lived in this world so that we can live in His. And that's the power of the Incarnation. This morning, if there's one here who understands who Jesus is, 
who understands Emmanuel and wants God to be with you in your life. If that's what you want today, you can have him in your life. He'll be with you. He'll be with you from now all the way through the day of eternity. Confess your faith in him as the Son of God. Confess that he's come in the flesh to save you from your sins. Confess that he came in the flesh to be king of your life, to be your high priest. Know those things. And turning away from sin, be baptized for the remission of your sins. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.